News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about religion this morning because organized religion seems to be becoming less and less a part of the daily life of many people. Or maybe, maybe we're just organizing ourselves differently. So if you talk about religion with someone, they might identify with a certain religious group or they might say to you, oh, no, 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 I'm an atheist, which you take to mean they're not part of an organized religion. But aren't they? I mean, this sounds like a philosophical question, doesn't it? So for that, we turn to Johnny Thompson, philosopher and writer for Big Think. Hi, Johnny. Hi, Simi. Now, do you think that if someone says that they are an atheist, that is still like an organized religion? Well, um, I mean, it's difficult, actually, because I wrote an article about the uh, the types of atheism. And of all the articles I've written, this is probably one of the most fiery ones I've written in terms of like feedback from people. Because um, a lot of atheists really dislike the idea that they are believers at all. Um, so they'll even balk at the idea of being called um, a belief. But if you collect all of kind of atheists in, in the US, for example, together, then actually it makes up the second largest open quotes, belief in, in the world, really. So um, the reason why it interests me is because, you know, we, there are roughly kind of 10,000 religions in the world today. And most of your listeners are familiar with the big ones like Christianity, Islam and Hinduism and things. Um, but um, and, and so we have kind of our theolo- theologians and anthropologists and sociologists who are very good at classifying those. But not much has been said or done about this kind of this, this quite large body of people who identify as, as atheists. Um, o- over a million people worldwide uh, do not follow a religion. And as I say, it's a quarter of the US and roughly 60% of the UK don't go, go, go to church. So it's a big body of people and uh, relatively little is done to, to kind of classify what that means. Because atheism isn't just this, this, this big monolith, really. There, there is, you know, there's secular people, there's agnostics, atheists, there's humanists, there's the irreligious and, and the non-religious. And they're, and they're not really synonyms. Um, and it, it matters to a lot of people, really. Um, because, I mean, there are some people who have, who have tried to classify atheism as being a kind, of, a kind of scale. Like Richard Dawkins, for example, does this in, in, in The God Delusion, where he says, you know, let, let's say one is like, I'm definitely sure that God exists, I'm, I'm, I'm religious. Right. And seven is, I definitely uh, think he doesn't exist, I'm, I'm an atheist. But even that kind of like, that kind of like assumes religion is, is a, an issue of probability and certainty. And actually even that kind of like puts the cart before the horse a little bit. So um, I was really interested in different types of, of atheists, really. Right. But I I see what you're saying, though. Like when you say you're an atheist, you have a set of beliefs. And so I guess it does it depend on how we Mm. define uh, religion. Is it just um, an organized set of beliefs? Well, that's it. Yeah. So I mean, so, I mean my, my first category I, I can identify is, is the non-religious people. And, and these are people who, are, who won't identify or won't subscribe to one of the big traditional religions. So a really good kind of example I used to describe this is, is China. Because if you look at the, the data we have on China, 91% of Chinese adults claim to be atheist. Um, and that's a self-identification. And what it means is that they don't, formal, they don't follow the formal creeds and practices which makes up um, established organized religions. Um, so they don't kind of like, you know, they don't go to church and they don't believe in the Four Noble Truths. But then if you zoom in a little bit closer, you see that while 91% claim to be atheists, actually 70% of the population also um, practice some kind of ancestor worship. Um, 12% identify with some kind of folk belief. And um, the vast majority practice the, the slightly pseudo-scientific, quasi-religious kind of traditional Chinese medicine. So um, a lot of people w- will claim to be atheistic, but what they mean is actually they don't subscribe to the major religions. And actually the root of the word atheism is to be anti-theistic. And, and theism is 
strictly speaking, in theological terms, only um, a personal God, a kind of like a, a relational God. So it would allow Buddhists, for example. I mean, I've, I've, I've got friends, for example, I've had kind of debates with, I kind of don't really do it anymore because there's no point really, but who've claimed to be atheists, but then they, they in the next sentence saying they also believe in, in angels or, or karma or um, ghosts and spirits and Ouija boards and a divine plan. <laughs> hey, you know, hey, and, hey, and, now <laughs> don't make fun of all that stuff. Come on. Some of us do that. Well, no, I'm not, <laughs> No, no, I'm not saying I'm not. I'm not absolutely not making fun of it. What I'm saying is that none of those alone make up a an organised belief, but they are religious beliefs of sorts. So people might yes. say I'm an atheist, and yet in the next breath say they believe in angels, and and so that actually it's it's either a contradiction in if if you take atheism to be a strictly kind of like not believing in metaphysical entities. Okay, so what are the really? different types of atheism then? Can you define that? Yeah, so, so so the non-religious is is that category I've said there, where they don't subscribe to the major traditional religions, and the other two types I identify are, are kind of like non-believers, and this is this is the kind of the Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett kind of people, and the kind of people you see on on internet forums who kind of really who get angry about religion, and so so they. They define religion as being a, a set of truth statements, um, so such as things like you know Jesus rose from the dead, or yogic flying is possible, or the or the angel <laughs> angel Jibril spoke to Muhammad. They, they believe that these are the these statements, and that they can then be disproven or disproven by by science and and logic and stuff. Um, but the problem is that a, a lot of religion doesn't form into this category. Um, a lot of people who are religious um, don't believe it is a matter of kind of like truth or falsity or, or probability in the same way that Dawkins and scientists would. Um, so Ludwig Wittgenstein and William James are two philosophers, for example, who say that religion is, is actually a, a different kind of knowing. And um, uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking that's the second category, right? So when you even when you think about something like Christianity, though, there's so many branches and different churches within Christianity. Why can't atheism be the same? Right, exactly, and, and and that is true. And even within Christianity, you have um, I mean, every major religion has has a kind of mystic wing, where they kind of don't really subscribe to any image of God, but they believe there's some kind of a spiritual reality. And I think Christianity and 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 also atheists are like that as well. Um, so yeah, so, so non-believers are the kind of Richard Dawkins kind of category, and and then the third and final category I kind of identify is what I what is called the agnostic really so this is what really got people's goat actually on in the comments people said that you know atheists are not agnostic they're, they're, they're very different things and they are different things but the point is that a lot of people who use the word atheist actually use it as an easier stand-in for agnostic because you know the statement i'm a hundred percent sure that god does not exist um i mean it's it, it's almost impossible to prove or disprove that you know who, who has the onus of, of responsibility to prove that claim is, is another question for debate but most people who are atheists will will probably under under questioning will, will say that actually that they're not sure but in the rub of it they, they live their life as if they are as if god does not exist so um that would I kind of make them James agnostic that. well exactly make them agnostic but then i think the as i mentioned earlier william james's philosopher and he wrote an essay, essay called the, the will to believe where he suggests actually those who claim to be agnostic where they kind of like you know uh, suspend disbelief or they don't they suspend answering they're living their life as if they are atheists so um in the kind of like a in practical terms or what he calls the cash value of, of of their belief is that they are really atheists so to all intents and purposes agnostics and atheists are separated by uh an epistemological difference really which mm -hmm. which doesn't actually make a difference on the on the day-to-day -day basis really johnny so, you said yeah. that people got very uh worked up about this in terms of commenting why do you think that is 
Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, because people's beliefs really, really matter to them, don't they? I think people who are atheist um, seem to seem to identify religion as, as of often being a, a source of intolerance, prejudice, you know, racism, misogyny, genocide, whatever. But also, equally, uh, those who are religious can identify that in in certain atheistic cultures and atheistic uh, kind of political movements, like um, like yeah, Maoism, for example, and 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 Stalin's Russia. Um, I think also everything. I mean, beliefs matter, and I think it's really important to have these conversations in a kind of open and kind of a rational way because um, I mean half of US adults claim US um, American adults claim to seldom or never talk about religion at all and you know we just had Christmas come by and I, I doubt many listeners will you know bring up politics and religion it's a bit of a kind of like a faux pas isn't it, to talk about these issues but actually I think it's really important because when you actually get to have these conversations you realize that actually everyone is nuanced in their beliefs and I think very few people are these kind of straw men stereotypes that we kind of present them to be and actually when we get so kind of vitriolic and angry about things it just means we haven't had the conversation and I think yeah I mean it's a bit yeah. of a cliche now but I think com conflict is often born of this misunderstanding so um, I think examining atheism as well as examining religion is deeply important if we're going to live together as very people. very yeah. true Johnny thank you for that <laughs> thank you very much Some wise words there from Johnny Thompson philosopher and writer for Big Think if you want to weigh in simi at cknw.com this is mornings with simi are you ready for this weather? Well, that's what our Scott Chance is asking this morning. And it's not about the coats and the tires on your car. Scott, it's about what we have in our cars. That's right, Simi. Do you have an emergency kit in your car, an emergency preparedness kit or a cold weather kit? I do not. This is a problem. Well, we need to remedy this. Here's my theory on this. Okay. My commute is very short. Yeah. Very short. I could walk if I need. I've, I've often thought that if the weather is really terrible, the snow is really falling, you know, something goes wrong, I, I could probably walk. But, Simi, what if after the show something came up and it was like, oh, I just need to drive to Burnaby to get this thing in this emergency circumstance because something has happened and you end up, you know, getting stuck on the side of the road in Burnaby? Right. Um, I wouldn't go. I, <laughs> I just wouldn't do that. However, I was going to say that the other people in my home whose vehicles that I also ride right. in, they do have an emergency kit. In fact, I would say that my daughter has the best emergency car kit that I've ever seen. Okay, well, let's go through some of the things on the emergency car kit list, and you can tell me if she has these things in her car. And this is because we are expecting snow, and uh, there are some things that it's very important that you keep in your car under these circumstances. Okay. Does she have food that won't spoil? Well, I don't know. Her car always got has a bunch of stuff in there, so I don't okay. know about that. But well, I know that other that she's got other stuff in there. Okay. Well, you're supposed to have food and energy bars and like water in plastic yes, bottles. That okay, I have. Perfect. Uh, definitely a blanket. You should have a blanket in your car. She definitely has a blanket in her car. Okay. Extra clothes and shoes. No. Yeah. See, that's a big one. What if you're stuck in your car for like a couple of days or you get stranded somewhere where you are going to stay there uh, and, and you need to spend a night? You should have extra clothes and extra I shoes. I feel like this would work for people who do have a lengthy commute, lengthier. I'm thinking about, remember a year ago with the snow, um, that snowmageddon yes. that we had and people were commuting for like 12 hours to yeah, get home and it was right? absolutely crazy. Poor Mark Staling couldn't even go home. He worked all night on that. Yeah. So yeah, I could see how this would be needed. Right. And on that thought, they're also saying you should have a candle uh, in a deep can, like an emergency survival candle, so you can heat the inside of your car without needing to keep it running. Really? Yeah, absolutely. 
Hmm. I've never heard that before. Yeah, no, that's for sure. And also you can have light without having to, maybe you want to read or do something. You can have light in your car without needing to like use the overhead light and kill the battery. They also say you should keep sand or salt or cat litter in your trunk so that you can try to, you know, get some traction, spin the wheels, antifreeze and windshield washer fluid. You should have extra things of that, a tow rope, jumper cables and and warning light or road flares. Okay. Yes. That's all in the emergency kit. Here's the thing. I feel like this is for areas where winter hits hard. I don't know if there are a lot of people in our area, Scott, but, who would consider those things necessary when it hardly ever snows here. But we just talked about how last year we had snowmageddon and people were uh, stuck in their cars thing. for like 12 hours. It was a one time thing. But Simi, the thing is, if you if you keep it in your car all the time, then you never have to plan and you don't have to think about it. Okay. Even if you just had it like a winter season and a summer season, you had the winter season in there, you put it in like today, and then you don't have to think about it until April and when you switch over to a spring emergency kit. Hmm. I, I think on the prairies, this would be, I would do this 100%. I would absolutely have that kind of equipment. If I had a long commute where it snowed without fail every year, yes, I would do all this. You see, this is the thing. If something's going to happen and you're going to be coming to me to use some of the supplies from my emergency yeah, I'm gonna kit. Yeah, I'm going to go sit because... in Scott's car over there. I see him. He's got the candle going. I'm going to go sit in Scott's yeah, car. Yeah, I'm going to have all sorts of things to be prepared because I don't want to be a burden on other hmm. people when the emergency strikes. And the prairies, I get what you're saying, but like they get a lot of snow in Abbotsford, Chilliwack, that sure. type of you're area. Right. Yeah. And it does get the conditions on the roads there. So yeah. Okay. If I was commuting on highway one, for instance, this would be a good idea. Exactly. And you say like, sure, you could walk, but say you're, you know, in between Abbotsford and Chilliwack on highway one and you get stuck in a snow drift. You don't want to walk. No, it could I'd, be like I'd, 10, 15 K. I'd call you. I'd say, Scott, are you coming in to work this morning? And can I get a ride? And I would say, how did you end up all the way out in Abbotsford on a morning that we're supposed to be working? Okay, smarty pants, smarty. Let me ask you this. Riddle me this then, Batman. Do you have an earthquake kit at your house? Yes, I do. Oh, do you? Of course. Really? Yes. It's actually dried food. The whole yep, thing. The whole thing. Oh, see, it's, I have that, and I'm pretty proud of myself. It's for that. in it's in the garage, yes. but I have an earthquake kit, and I also have a bug out bag. I know I sound like doomsday preppery when yeah, I say that. Now but I'm a little worried about it's you. Just, it's just I would rather be prepared and not need it than need it and not have it. Okay, now I have to ask people: Are you as prepared as Scott is? Because I will be honest, I am not. Earthquake kit? Yes, absolutely. We have everything ready for that. All that other stuff you talked about. There's more chance fun. you're gonna get stuck. In in the snow in the next month than there is going to be an earthquake. Oh, you don't know that. You don't know that. All right, let's see. Are you ready? Do you have the kind of preparations done that Scott's got? This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's check in with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun this morning because the Premier had the first kind of big news conference of the year yesterday. Want to find out what happened there. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. And yes, the first major David Eby news conference of the year and the advance notice said it was going to be about cancer and there was a tech briefing scheduled before the news conference. So um, I think it was fair to assume this was going to address what the Premier said in a number of year-end interviews, that the wait times for cancer treatment in B.C., are unacceptable. However, that is not what the press conference was about. There was a major announcement about a particular type of cancer care. Uh, The BC government for the first province in Canada is offering a home testing kit for cervical cancer. That's significant. It will help 
uh, people, particularly in rural remote areas, uh, people who don't have family doctors to refer them to it, uh, people who are reluctant uh, to get the pap test. And the good thing about it, Simi, is that this home testing kit is proven to be more effective at detecting the most virulent form of uh, cervical cancer. Um, so all that's to the good. Still, you know, there were questions to the premier. Um, what about the unacceptable wait times for cancer care in British Columbia? Because after all, he was the one who said that was the case. Right. Okay. So you're right. This The cervical cancer announcement is actually very significant. BC is the first province to be doing this right across the country. And we're going to talk more about it uh, later this morning, about what it means and how it's going to work. And it is a very big deal. But you're yeah. right. And, and then uh, what know, people want to hear about is how are we fixing the yeah. system? Yeah, I'm glad you're going to be doing something a little later on, because I thought that the, the two best questions about the announcement were both asked by reporters who said, Said, how is this actually going to work for people who don't have a family doctor? Because you do the home testing, all right, that's good. Uh, how, who will be in charge of telling you to get tested at home and reminding you to do it on a regular schedule? I mean, your family doctor will do that, but if you don't have one. And then, of course, what if the test results come back and they come back in the mail and say uh, you should deal with this? Uh, how do the referrals work? So there are answers to that. Yep, there are. But I think, you know, for people out there who are going, okay, how is this going to work? Uh, all that is important. I'm glad you yep. got somebody on yep. to talk about it because so uh, cancer quickly... doctors are better at explaining this than me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the, the quick answer of that is this system is actually designed for people who do not have a family doctor. Yes. So yeah. that's the benefit of it. So we'll talk about that later. We're actually going to speak to the health minister as well later. But let's talk about the wait times for cancer care because there was there any update on that? Uh, no. And in fact... Uh, when they got asked about it, they gave us answers that we're very familiar with. They they pointed to last year's cancer care program, which was announced last year. It's very ambitious. Uh, it's got all kinds of elements in it. But, you know, uh, we also know that it's almost a year old now. And the premier himself said it still wasn't adequate to deal with the problem. So, you know, we heard about different responses, recruiting doctors, uh, sending some people south of the border for treatment, uh, the health minister pointing out that we've added something like more than 300,000 people have been added to the medical services plan in the last two years. So we're familiar with all of that. But, you know, as I said, the premier is the one who said the wait times are unacceptable and the plan so far has not addressed that. Uh, I think we're going to have to wait to see more detail in response to that. But he's the one who put it on the radar screen for reporters to ask questions. And the answers yesterday didn't really advance the story at all. Right. OK, there were some interesting aspects to this press conference, though. There was something unusual about this press conference, and that was the presence of Dr. Kaylee Lynch, who is uh, the spouse of Premier David Eby. And what was she doing there? I mean, she's a family doctor. yes. Uh, E.B. started us off with a lame joke about how he and his wife had decided to spend more time together, and the press conference gave them a way of doing it away from the kids, but I think he recognized it was unusual just with a joke. And she provided an update on the pregnancy, and it's going very well, and that's good to know, but, you know, the, the real reason that I... 
as I said, it's very unusual for the spouses of BC politicians to share the platform on any basis. Uh, E.B. said, well, Dr. Lynch is there to communicate her own personal experience dealing with patients on cervical cancer and why this new testing will help them. Fair enough. Doesn't really explain why some other family doctor wasn't asked to be there. And there are many of them, I expect, who know that. Uh, but I just note that, you know, Simi, the reason why spouses of politicians don't share the public platform in BC, and a good example was Ellie, uh, the wife of John Horgan, who you rarely saw in public, uh, is because in return, the news media in this country don't write about the spouses That's right. politicians, yeah. don't try to interview them, don't ask them questions. As far as I know, no one, for example, has gone to ask Dr. Lynch what she did with the enhanced uh, financial assistance for family doctors from her husband's government last year, because I think it's generally seen as families are not fair game for this sort of thing. I think that's a good thing. It is. I assume that uh, the Premier and Dr. Lynch were aware of that history and nevertheless decided to go ahead yesterday. No one disputes her credentials as a family doctor. Uh, no one disputes that she has insights. I guess the only question is, why not ask some other family doctor to do it? so you don't politicize your own spouse. All right, we're talking with Vaughn Palmer this morning about some comments that the Premier made. And I've been waiting for this. Vaughn, I wanted to hear what Premier E.B. would have to say about that B.C. Supreme Court decision. Yeah, the general rule when the Premier calls a press conference is the first few news uh, question reporters deal with the topic, which was cancer. But they also leave time if the Premier hasn't, especially if the Premier hasn't done anything for uh, news conferences for a while that you near the end you get to ask about other stuff. So yes, the premier got asked about a reaction uh, to the court decision almost two weeks ago. Now BC Supreme Court issued an injunction against the BC government law that attempts to restrict open drug use in public places. And there's a lot of details in it, but the court basically said that the attempt, those attempts. Uh, would trample the constitutional rights of drug takers. Uh, the judge said doesn't mean they could take it anywhere they want, but in effect, I have to say, with all due respect, that's what the judgment says at the moment. So the premier gets asked. He thanked the reporter for the question. You knew uh, he knew it was coming, and his reaction was pretty strong for a premier dealing with a court decision, especially a premier who's also a lawyer said the decision was profoundly concerning that the province has trouble accepting that it cannot restrict open use of hard drugs the way it already restricts smoking and alcohol consumption in public. So uh, I think a lot of people have said that, but the premier saying it is takes it to another level. So what's he going to do about it? He says that the Attorney General, Nikki Sharma, and her team of lawyers in her ministry are looking at options. Well, that tells me what we've been hearing through the grapevine, Simi, is that 
the government was really troubled by the decision, but hadn't figured out what to do about it. Because first of all, it's a decision by the Chief Justice of BC Supreme Court. And second, it's very broad. It says it's a constitutional rights ruling. And it says that the government's options for protecting the rights of drug users to take drugs are not good enough because the province doesn't have enough places uh, for safe injection. Uh, Those places don't operate 24-7. Not all of them even deal with all the different types of drug use. So, you know, the premier's answer was, we're studying it. Um, I have to say that they are really struggling with this one, Simi. They, They really haven't figured out yet what to do about it. I guess part of the complications here is that it wasn't really law yet, was it? It was in the process of becoming law. Yeah, that's an interesting point about it. So the government passed the legislation last fall, but as often happens with legislation, there are parts of it that you don't know exactly how it will be applied because regulations passed by the cabinet are coming later. And it also had what's called a proclamation clause, which means the law doesn't take effect until the cabinet signs an order saying it takes effect. Well, none of that had happened. And in fact, the government's challenge, the government's defense of the law and its argument against the injunction was, you know, hey, this thing isn't even law yet. Like, why would you issue an injunction against something that is still theoretical, particularly since you don't have the regulations? Well, the Chief Justice did not accept that argument. He said the implications of this law are so far-reaching that they affect the constitutional rights of drug takers, and they also affect the constitutional rights of the nurses and medical practitioners who deal directly with drug takers, and that's the people in the Harm Reduction Nurses Association, which won the court case. So, Um, All of that is laid out there. Uh, The government could, Simi, uh, proclaim the law, bring in a bunch of regulations that try to address the decision by the courts and proceed to a full-blown defense of the law in the courts. And that might be the best option, although I don't know what they're going to do. You know, the trouble with that is is, uh, defending your law in court can take a long time particularly if the court decides in the interim to continue the injunction. The injunction expires March 31st, but if the government is going to go ahead with the law and fight to defend it, it could take years, right? So that isn't a great option, but neither is an appeal. Uh, You know, they could appeal the injunction, but again, the, the rumblings from the legal community is, very rare to challenge a court injunction in this way, particularly one that has an expiry date. So I go back to saying uh, the New Democrats are were caught by surprise by this ruling. They're very unhappy with it. They're very concerned, Simi, that it means that the problem of open drug use will continue. And in the back of their minds, they're concerned that because of the long effort needed to challenge a ruling like this in the long run, that problem may continue for some time. You know, I know, we've heard it from all kinds of mayors and councillors. They just think this whole thing is totally, the, the court is totally out of touch with the public and the public concern. 
But, you know, the court has spoken and it is not clear how to get beyond this. And I think that's why it's taking the government so long to come up with an answer. So theoretically, they could just let the injunction expire and tweak the law. Yes, they could. Uh, They could. Yes, they could uh, bring in regulations uh, and say, uh, look, we are trying very, very hard to provide enough safe injection sites in the province. Uh, We've already got 47 of them. Okay, we can expand their operating hours. Yes, we could create more of them. But that's going to take time. And look, there's a practical problem with that, too. There are communities in the province that don't want and neighborhoods in the province that do not want to be next to a safe injection site because they can be a recipe for chaos and an open-air drug market as well. Not everywhere, but some of them are. So, you know, this is a real, real problem for the the whole province, really, because as we talked earlier this week, we're coming up on the first anniversary of decriminalization. I will just say that if this court decision stands public support for decriminalization will continue to erode because people won't stand for this open drug use happening anywhere in their community. Uh, The court says you can't tell drug users they can't take heroin within 50 meters of a playground or six meters of a bus stop. I just think that is totally at odds with public opinion. And, uh, you know, the Constitution says what it says, and the judges said what the Constitution says. But this is a real political dilemma for the government, which supports decriminalization in the face of the backlash against it. It does feel like a tipping point. All right, Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. BC is making some history this week, becoming the first province to offer what's called self-collected HPV screening to detect cervical cancer. The goal? To drastically bring down the number of cervical cancer cases in this province. What does that mean, though? Well, it means that rather than being prompted to go for a pap smear regularly, you will instead be able to collect samples at a time and place of your choosing. So what are the advantages of this? And how can we be sure that everyone feels comfortable doing it this way? Like, won't some people maybe fall by the wayside if we leave it to people to get this done? Well, Dr. Nancy Durand is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto and medical collaborator with HPV Global Action and joins us now. Dr. Durand, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. What do you think of this change that we're making here in B.C.? The change in BC is really on the cutting edge in Canada and is to be commended. The reason being that cervical screening to prevent cervical cancer in a perfect world would reach everybody who needs to be screened, everyone with a cervix. And the reality is we don't reach everybody who needs to be screened. We only reach about 65 to 70% of women across the country with a pap test. So what's the reasons that we don't reach everybody? Well, as you can imagine, it's not a comfortable test. It's not something that people enjoy having to go for. And there are definitely people who avoid this test for many different reasons. They may have had a history of trauma in the past. They may just find it extremely uncomfortable. 
And so there are definitely people that either screen infrequently or not at all. HPV home testing is an advantage in reaching that underscreened population. And we found in other countries this is very successful when it's offered to women. And in the BC pilot project, which has run for the past two years, again, it was very successful and highly accepted by this group of people who were not presenting for traditional cervical screening with a pap test. Okay, but what about the people who are presenting because they are being prompted to do so and now they think, well, if I'm not going to get a reminder, they may just not remember to do this? So the way it's going to roll out in British Columbia is that you could request to have a home test kit sent to you, but you don't have to do it that way. So traditional PAP testing with the physician or the nurse practitioner will still continue for a certain segment of the population. So it's not everybody that they're rolling out at once. This is going to begin to be offered at the end of January, if that's something that you're interested in. So it's especially designed to reach that underscreened population. If you're over the age of 55, HPV testing will also be offered to you. And then gradually conversion will happen from traditional pap testing to HPV testing. Why that's important, the HPV test is actually a better test at detecting what we are looking for. We want to detect people with a cervix who have abnormal changes, precancerous changes, before they become cancer. The HPV test is better at identifying who those people are so that they can get treatment to prevent development of cervical cancer. So the two tests perform differently. The PAP test we know is not as good at detecting all people who need to be detected. It has a false negative rate that can be quite considerable, 20 to 30%. So when you do a PAP test traditionally, there is a certain proportion that will be read as normal, which actually are not normal. The HPV test is much better at picking up those individuals who are at risk for development of cervical cancer before it happens. Right. I guess I'm wondering as well about the connection to the healthcare system. If if we are being, you know, told mm-hmm. to do this at home, what about people who don't have that connection to the system, don't have the family doctor, don't have the expected follow-up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what the province has built in as you have to do in a pilot or in a program that's being rolled out such as this, is if an abnormal HPV test is found, that result, when it is relayed to you at home, will also give a mechanism to provide you with the next step with a person who will then go on to do a traditional PAP or, if needed, referral to the next stage, which is called colposcopy where we do a magnification of the cervix to see if we need to take any extra samples or consider treatment. So that safety mechanism is built in to the program in British Columbia. British Columbia is the first to offer the additional home testing. Prince Edward Island has moved to HPV testing as their first test, which is really commendable, but BC is the first to offer this option for women to do it at home if they're not comfortable coming into the provider 
do the testing. Right. Okay. So I'm guessing then this will be closely watched uh, across the country by people like yourself to see how this works. Absolutely. Now, British Columbia is very lucky in that they have a more coordinated system than some provinces. Their registry for abnormal results is very well coordinated. So the chance of someone falling through the cracks is extremely low. The rest of the country will move to primary HPV testing as the first test done on all those with a cervix for cervical screening. But most provinces are not yet at the point that British Columbia is in rolling it out. So we definitely watch from other provinces with great anticipation. Well, thank you so much for your time on that. You're welcome. That's Dr. Nancy Durand. Nancy is the Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Toronto and Medical Collaborator with HPV Global Action, watching very closely what is going to happen here in BC with the launch of this new cervical cancer at home screening program. Now, we're also going to talk to the health minister about this later on this morning, talk about why BC is taking these but from what we heard there, unprecedented steps. And the rest of Canada is watching. This is Mornings with Simi. Now our Scott Chance is with us to tell us about this new sport. And I'm I'm using that word in air quotes because I'm not sure you can call this a sport or it's a game. Yeah, but there are lots of things, Simi, that are games that people consider sports. I would say, and I'm probably going to get destroyed for this, but golf. Golf is one of those things. It's a game. I don't know that people would call it a sport. Okay. There I see what you're saying. And there is some physical activity involved in golf. I mean, it's kind of, there's a lot of hours that you're spending out there and there's a lot of movement and you have to have some uh, muscle ability to, you know, repeatedly swing that club. But tell us about the game that you're discussing today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want to preface this by saying that, you know, this time last year, everyone was talking about pickleball, right? Like pickleball was the thing that was exploding. For a while there, it was the fastest growing game in the world. Well, Simi, pickleball is out and in is cornhole. (laughs) (laughs) So now people understand why I was saying this because cornhole is a game, Scott. And and you're right. It is. It's like a a game that you often see at, I don't know, like a brewery or at like somebody's backyard. somebody's backyard barbecue. Yeah, totally. But, Simi... It is a fun game. It's a really fun game. And I think that this is how often how these things happen. It starts out as a game that people kind of play, and then some people take it more seriously, and it elevates and elevates and elevates. And then that's how you kind of get to this level of, oh, these people are really serious, and this has become like a professional league. And that's what is happening here. We have Cornhole Canada, and these people uh, of tried to professionalize this game or sport and make it into a really legitimate thing with rules and regulations and, you know, talk of the Olympics. That might be a bit of a stretch, but I got in touch with Sebastian Giannino. He's part of the executive team of Cornhole Canada. I wanted to find out more about this and, you know, kind of how serious it is. So I started like just by asking him, if you're unfamiliar, what is Cornhole? Cornhole is a very simple game um, that you play. I mean, most of us probably play in the backyard. Uh, it's basically two sets of boards that you set uh, you know, apart from each other, and then you try to get uh, bean bags. You throw the bean bag into, um, into the hole, and so you try to 
do that and try to get as many points as you can doing that. Yeah, I feel like I've seen this game at like lots of breweries and stuff, and it's kind of like a summertime, chilling, have a drink in your hand, and just kind of hang out with your buddies kind of game, right? 100%. That's how the game is known, I think, from you know, the majority of you know the, the players out there or the people out there. It's a, it's a backyard game. It's a fun game. Anybody can play it, but we've kind of started to standardize it a bit with Cornhole Canada and trying to make it more of an organized professional sport. Okay, and so what does that look like? Is it, you know, you have uh, specific settings for how far the, the boards need to be apart, or like what, what kind of rules do you have in place that make it sort of more official? Yeah, so, so what we've done is we've, we've tried to, with Cornell Canada, is to standardize the sport with exactly that, is having some set, like, dimensions on the, on the court length, so it's 27 feet apart from the front of the board, um, from the from front of the board, and then we've also set some standards on you know the size of the board, uh, also uh, with um, the bags, the the size of the, the dimensions of uh, the bags, and we've also instituted some uh, some rule sets where you know the player can't step over the line. There's uh, you know certain points that, that that can be scored, so and so forth, and and we've created you know tournament structures and, and a point structure for players to follow. Super cool. And now the game is really uh, growing in popularity. Why do you think that is? So I, I really think the reason why is, is twofold. First, because it's such an easy game to play. Anybody can play it. Uh, it doesn't matter like your skill level. It doesn't matter your age, gender. Um, and it's one of those things where anybody can do it. So it lends to like really, uh, and, it, and it's you know, really inexpensive. Uh, secondly, not to pat ourselves in the back, I really think that we've we've really tried to put it on the map since uh, 2020, the launch of Cornhole Canada. We've put you know a, a few nationals now under our belt, and we really try to grow the game uh, through just like you know uh, promoting it through our our social channels. And I really think that we've we've played a little bit of a you know if I can pat myself on the back or us on the back is to help you know get it uh, get it noticed. Yeah, and I know that, like like you say, it's getting noticed now, and there's talk of, like, competition, and you guys are even kind of pushing this thing towards the Olympics. Is that right? Yeah, so, I mean, definitely that's something that we're, you know, looking at for sure. I mean, we're probably going to be, like, further along the lines in our plan, but that's one thing that, you know, uh, we really are, are putting some effort into to making it hopefully an Olympic sport one day. But our main goal right now is to expose the game to as many people uh, in Canada as possible, get as many leagues started as possible, and just get the player base up there. Uh, so that way there's more and more uh, you know, professional or, or highly organized games happening. And then once that starts, you know, I think it's just going to be a snowball effect where we'll see you know, tons of uh, 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 players out there that would want to see it become an Olympic sport. Yeah, it's definitely addictive for anyone who's played it or or tried playing it. Um, tell me about the skill that goes into becoming a cornhole player because, like I said, it's kind of this like, hey, we're at a brewery, we're just hanging out in the backyard or at the beach type of game. But to take it to this sort of competitive level like you guys have done, what sort of skill is involved in that that differentiates some of the professionals from just like the layperson cornhole player? Yeah, so what I would say is, you know, practice makes perfect. Um, with cornhole, like I said, it's a very easy game, right? So if you can throw a beanbag, I mean, you can play the game. But the skill level that it takes to be consistent, to be, you know, uh, on the board every time, to play strategy, it's not only just trying to get the bag in the hole, it's like playing a blocker bag. So the, there's a whole strategy that, that comes to play. 
And the, what separates the players, just like I think in any other sport, is just the consistency, it's the practice, and it's the, the will to, to want to do it, right? And so the players that put more time into it, uh, there are some techniques that over the years now that we've been playing, players are starting to like, develop different throwing styles or different throwing angles to help them you know, get that competitive edge. Uh, and so I, one thing that word of advice that I would probably say is just to keep consistently your throw and your stance is probably like the biggest factor uh, when it comes to, to becoming one of the, the top elites. It's so cool to see uh, people's passion for something that you might not have expected, you know, and to, to hear you guys talk about taking it to to the next level. So congratulations on, on what you've built. And it is a super fun game. If people who... Uh, are listening to this want to get involved or give cornhole a try where can people yeah. go to get more information or sort of maybe even try it out see other watch other people play where would we get started yeah so i would say head over to uh, cornholecanada.ca and you can get a list of like all the leagues across uh across canada uh they're actually in in uh, bc um we have like a, a bunch of leagues that are there as well. We got Fraser Valley, Kamloops, Kelowna, uh, Vernon, Great Victoria. Uh, we're actually the Nationals are happening in, in BC this year, so uh, that's something to look out for. And just yeah, hit us up on our socials. Uh, there's lots of leagues across Canada, and and we'd love to. And anybody that wants to start a league, we're looking for for uh, league members to to constantly start up. So give us a shout, and we'll help you get started. That's Sebastian Giannino from Cornhole Canada. There's Simi. cornhole leagues. There's Cornhole Nationals? Yeah, this is what I'm saying. It's like it's taken the, the country by storm. Like there are there are like it's official. They have leagues. It's like a court is taped off. You can't step over the line. They have jerseys. It's serious. You know, Scott, you learn something new every day in this job. That's what I'm here for. That is what you provided <laughs> me with today. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. That is our Scott Chance. If you'd like to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you ready? Like winter weather, real winter weather is coming our way this week. And we've been talking about the different ways to get ready. But when it comes to severe winter conditions, it's also worth asking, is BC as a province prepared to deal with these conditions? Sure, we have plans for the Coquihalla and high risk areas. But what about all the other transportation areas and systems? Is our infrastructure prepared to deal with severe winter weather? That's what we're going to talk about with our next guest. It's Dr. Gordon Lovegrove, who's an associate professor of civil engineering and principal investigator of the Smarter Growth Partnership at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Dr. Lovegrove, thanks for being with us. You're so welcome. Good morning. I love your lead-in song. Good morning, Norm, too. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, Let's talk about are we ready? Do you think BC, as a province, is our infrastructure ready for severe winter conditions? Well, uh, if you've read the latest infrastructure uh, report by the Civil Engineering Society of Canada, we have a lot of old infrastructure right across Canada that's that's aging and needs replacement and upgrading and rehabilitation. So I guess technically, no. Uh, the good news is professional engineers right across Canada are also aware of that and taking precautions to try and minimize the risk. But we're still going to have those water main breaks you see every winter. We're still going to have uh, icy roads people have to be careful on and, and take precautions on. So it's it's everybody taking and doing their part to prepare and, and just allow a little bit more time, do a little bit better planning in, in, the, in the extreme weather we've got coming up. Okay, and what are some of those challenges then to the infrastructure? 
Well, the biggest thing is we've, we've you know, major water mains, uh, when water freezes, it expands and it bursts valves, fittings, and, and uh, this is this is a very common occurrence across Canada. And flooding in the middle of winter is the worst kind of disaster you want to have uh, with the cold. So uh, that is the big one. Uh, water mains, you know, sewer draining, sometimes uh, sanitary sewers. The good news is, it comes out of a heated home. It'll it'll it won't freeze as quickly. But uh, I was just driving down our neighborhood street. Somebody's got their sanitary sewer dug up in the middle of a snowstorm and and being replaced because of the cold, frozen weather. So, so cold weather freezes pipes, water, sanitary water. Uh, we've also got electricity. I mean, in in extreme weather, cold. Uh, if if you got any snow or water getting into warmer areas and it's melting into, you could have power outages. And power outage in the middle of winter, as you know, we that that's an issue too. Uh, it affects SkyTrain. It affects the way we get around, uh, how we heat our homes. So we have to be prepared for everything: windstorms, snowstorms, blizzards, you name it. Uh, extreme weather affects all of the infrastructure. Are we good at replacing this, though? You talk about things like water mains. I mean, some of those pipes, a lot of that is is very old in some of our cities. Yeah, I remember uh, when I was working in the city of Vancouver, we had 99, 100-year-old wood stave major pipes. I think that one from the North Shore was just replaced, uh, what was it, uh, 10, 20 years ago. But uh, you're right, it's it's, uh, infrastructure, you put it in the ground, it's supposed to last for 50 years. Often we make it or push it to 100 years, as I just said. So uh, you you need to get it up onto a good cycle. I mean, we're in the tax season, uh, making sure you replace it on a regular basis, typically one to five percent of infrastructure gets replaced every year by municipalities and that's that's a really important proactive planning by uh, professional engineers to make sure it doesn't age past its its useful life or its reliable life so to speak right okay do you see that planning being done that you talked a little bit about that there but some of the other things you're talking about require i think a lot of attention and investment absolutely and that that's the crunch there's only one taxpayer so um, it's up to elected officials, the strategic decision makers, uh, based on the recommendations of professional engineers and planners to decide where is that taxpayer dollar going to be best spent to maintain and sustain our quality of life. It is a really tough decision. Now, Dr. Lovegrove, you've already talked about that you've talked about the need to uh, reconsider kind of transportation strategies. You, you talk about more resilient transportation systems. What does that mean? Well, resilience is, in effect, uh, how do you recover, rebuild, or, or, you know, think about different ways of doing things after an unexpected disaster happens. And, I mean, we had that uh, in November a couple of years ago with the, the Coca-Cola washouts and, and basically Sumac Lake reappearing. Um, we've had them up here this this past summer in the Okanagan where I am, you know, wildfires in the smoke. And, and uh, we've, we've, across Canada, experienced $3 billion in hits. Uh, in terms of destroyed infrastructure and the, and the cost to recover. So that's resilience. Is how do you design or future-proof a system that can withstand and recover quickly to get people evacuated or get people back in or allow communities to rebuild uh, with the minimum shock on, on quality of life, on our tourism, uh, on our way of life, on people's health and safety. It is really, really tough. And again, that's that's where we have to go now as a profession, as planners. We're looking for ways to diversify how we get around, for example, travel choices. Um, we need to look at things besides everything being auto-centric. That's who North America is. So we're looking around the world and Europe 
uh, has a great example. Uh, Germany, similar climate to ours, they're looking at ways to get people around that's not all on the Autobahn, the German great highway system. They love driving there. They're very similar to us, right? Uh, yet they also have something called a tram train, which is a train or a streetcar that runs in cities but also travels between cities. And so we're looking at things like that. But you know, you read in the news this morning, there's just an article on, on hydrogen. Canadian and international governments are looking at a hydrogen economy. If we rely on things that are linked to uh, an electric wire that could get flooded or cut off, how do you make that resilient? What you maybe need to do is look at putting hydrogen on board a tram train or a light rail vehicle so that despite the power going out, that vehicle can still run. And we've got hydrogen cars doing the same thing. I feel like we don't do this until the worst happens. Do you know what I mean? Like I, you talked about the Coquihalla washout there, and now we have rebuilt it to a standard that you know surpasses that. But we seem to wait until the bad things happen, don't we? Um, it's human nature. Why change if it's not broken? Don't fix it. Um, uh, there are some of us, and more of us, and the, you know, asset management experts across Canada, around the world, are realizing, and insurance corporations are telling us. Uh, your premium's going up unless you plan. I mean, uh, think about it simply as, you know, your house has to be within a certain distance of a fire hydrant, uh, or you don't get a premium on your insurance if you get insurance at all. Other homes now in flood zones uh, are having problem getting insurance. Actually, it's interesting. Uh, it's called ESG, Environment Sustainability Governance. Uh, the insurance companies are now making sure companies, cities, planners, homeowners, building infrastructure managers are planning more resilience into their system. So actually, as, as a group, it's now hitting us on the bottom line. And when the bottom line is impacted, everybody starts looking up. I mean, how many people are ticked off about taxes going up? Now they're going to stop and think about what can we do to reduce that? So it is, it is you're right, necessities and mother of in, invention or innovation or change when the pain of Changing is less than the pain of staying as you are. People generally start changing, but it's taken a long time to get yeah. there. But we we are there. We need to start looking at that. All right. Well, Dr. Lovego, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You are so welcome. Have a great day and you stay too. safe up there. I will. You too. That's Dr. Gordon Lovegrove, an Associate Professor of Civil Engineering and Principal Investigator of the Smarter Growth Partnership at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan, talking about the ways in which we need to improve and strengthen our transportation systems in light of you know severe weather. Sure, we need to do things like putting our emergency kits in our cars and doing all the things that we've talked about this week, but on a bigger picture, there's a lot more that needs to be done too. This is Mornings with Simi. BC is making some history this week. As we heard from Premier David Eby and Health Minister Adrian Dix, BC is becoming the first province to offer what's called self-collected HPV screening to detect cervical cancer. So the goal is to drastically bring down the number of cervical cancer cases in this province. How is this going to work, though? Why is this so significant? Joining us now to talk about that is Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health. Thank you very much for being here. Hey, good morning, Simi. So why do this? Why do this? We um, This, uh, first of all, is good science. These tests are not only more comfortable and convenient, but they're more ac- uh, accurate. They're HPV tests, which for people will be more accurate than the current uh, pap test screening process. Right? Se- secondly, we did and went through an extensive uh, pilot project. involved 13,000 women from uh, different parts of B.C., and it proved to be effective, and it increased the participation 
in cancer screening, which is very important in and of itself. So for all of these reasons, good for women, good for the healthcare system, better screening. We're going ahead with this, and we expect other jurisdictions to follow us. Okay, so about the attachment to the healthcare system, I guess that's the question that I have is how do you, if, if we don't have a family doctor, how do you make sure that the message gets out to the people who need it about doing this on their own? Well, uh, in this case, it's a very simple process. You can order the kit online uh, or by phone. You, can re- you receive the kit in the mail. You complete the process, the screening process. You drop off your completed test, uh, test and you get the results should the results detect something that's problematic, right? Uh, you will be, uh, they will be forwarded to uh, someone in the primary care network you're committed to, the do- a doctor in your connected, and you'll be connected with BC Cancer. So whether or not you have a healthcare provider right now, uh, you'll be linked to a clinic in your community to follow up on the results of this test, should that be required. If the results are negative and, and it's from, uh, you'll come back and do the same process in five years and continue the screen. Okay. How do you capture the people, though, who don't call and ask for the test on their own? Well, we have to, of course, communicate the message out in interviews like this, but also uh, through uh, various advertising so that people understand that this is available to them. What we found in the regions where we did the pilot project was we were able to communicate this message out. We heard from a couple of women yesterday who took part in the pilot project and really benefited from it. We have to get the message out that this is possible, that you can... Uh, get screened by going to the screeningbc.ca backslash cervix website or or call us and uh, and uh, get uh, the test. This starts on January the 29th. Okay, so it's starting at the end of this month. Are you starting with certain age groups? Nope. It's, uh, it's through everyone who's eligible uh, for the test will be able to um, order a self-screening test. You should expect uh, in the process results within four to six weeks and uh, and this will greatly assist us in the process and assist us in helping eliminate cervical cancer in BC. One other thing, of course, is required. This is principally for those uh, under 19, which is to get vaccinated, get the HPV vaccination, which is available starting in grade six. And uh, both of these things, uh, actions will help us eliminate cervical cancer. And boy, isn't that a great, uh, a great goal for a province? I'd add that BC has a special history here. We were also the first province in Canada in the 1950s, Cindy, if you can believe it, to put in a cervical cancer screening program. So this is an area where BC has led, and our scientists, especially Dr. Gina Ogilvie, Dr. Proctor from the Cancer uh, Agency, have done just an exceptional job on this project. Is that possible, do you think, to to, wipe out cervical cancer in BC? It absolutely is. I mean, it requires vaccination, and uh, vaccination against the HPV uh, against uh, an HPV vaccination, which is available to everyone for free under 19. And we encourage everyone to get vaccinated. You do this with better screening and you, and you can absolutely achieve that goal. It's our goal to do it in the next 10 years. And that's obviously um, for women, but for all of, uh, all of British Columbia, really an important goal to reach. Right. I think a lot of people are very concerned about our cancer system right now. Is this, is this step one? Are there other kind of cancer measures coming? Well, you know, a year ago, we launched a 10-year cancer plan. We're putting in place four new cancer centers in Kamloops, in Nanaimo, in Surrey, and in Burnaby that, to deal with cancer diagnoses around BC that principally will assist in radiation technology. We are also have a health human resources plan 
Just to put it in context, 80 cancer doctors hired since last April 1st by the cancer agency. Because what we know is there's a challenge now, and there'll be a challenge in 10 years. There are about 30,000 diagnoses a year right now. It will be 45,000 by 2035. So we got to keep building out our system with the doctors and the nurses and the health sciences professionals we need. We need to add cancer centers. And we need to take actions like this, which are sometimes called population health, but really give people control themselves over their own health care. So when you talk about building out those cancer centers, how close are we to getting those up and running? We're starting. And that's going to take some years to build a cancer center. Build a, but we're started in Surrey, uh, in Burnaby, uh, and uh, the two other places, Kamloops and Nanaimo. Uh, business plans have all been prepared and we're, uh, we're on track. I know there's been a lot of stories in the news recently about people who are struggling to get cancer care. What goes through your mind when you hear and see those stories? Uh, I'm, uh, you know, my family is like every other family have dealing right now with cases of cancer. And of course, uh, my, my response and our goal is urgency. There was a lot of discussion of why some people were given the option of going to Bellingham for cancer care. It's because we don't want, as we respond to our growing population, as we respond to all the challenges in the system, we don't want people to not have that option to be delayed to get in terms of getting radiation uh, treatments uh, right now. I think it's uh, it's critically important to do this. To me, you you'll know this: three hundred and forty thousand more people on MSP in the last two years alone, three times the rate of growth of people on MSP compared to ten years ago, and that means we have to build out rapidly a system. We've added 38,000 healthcare workers since I, I was Minister of Health to 2022. We've got to do it again now. And that's why we have all the measures you've heard about recruiting doctors, our most successful year last year, recruiting doctors, recruiting nurses and training nurses, uh, and the work we're doing with the BC Nurses Union and our nurses uh, working together with the government on that question, health sciences professionals and everything. We've got to do it all. We've got to build out a system that responds to this incredibly challenging time. And public health care did a great job on COVID-19 in BC, but that was in addition to everything else. It was a massive challenge for our system, and uh, we just got to keep working to build out to deal with population growth and an aging population. So with this new program then, what do people need to know? Do we need to register? Do we wait? What do we do? If, uh, if you're eligible on January 29th, you order a kit online and... Uh, and uh, that information is available at screeningbc.ca. Uh, and so you can get that information. You can order a test kit online starting January 29th. You get the test kit and, um, and uh, you start the process. You, need, you don't need to be, if you've been recently tested, you don't need to be tested again, obviously. There's a regular process for this. But what will happen once people start self-screening is that uh, they'll do it. And then in five years, they'll be reminded. And in five years, they'll be reminded. So that they'll have that process and they can avoid you know, and, and uh, one of the women who spoke about this yesterday, who's part of the pilot project, talked about how much better this was for her to have to be able to do this in the comfort of her own home and how this gave her access that she didn't feel she had before. And I think, uh, I think a lot of women that I've spoken to in the last day in particular uh, feel that way. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. 
Hey, thank you. Anytime. Take care. You too. That's Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health, talking about BC's, it's a bit revolutionary, program with HPV screening and the goal to eliminate cervical cancer. So moving to an at-home testing where it is up to you and you can do that at home rather than having to go for a pap smear. Like that is huge for a lot of people. And right across the country, I know other health jurisdictions are watching very carefully to see how BC does with this.